FYI, this episode was recorded the week of the presidential election. <sighs> In an ideal world, we would cast our ballots and it would be like waking up from a bad dream. COVID-19 would be banished from the lands and corporate dollars would be ousted from our democracy. Climate change would be halted and the effects of hurricanes and wildfires would be reversed. Our favorite venues and bars and small businesses could safely reopen and millions of people would be back to work with health care and a living wage and we would no longer be worried about descending into fascism and economic collapse. But y'all know, reality is a bit messier. The reality of the situation is that voting will not immediately yield results and change is never a given even when a new administration is elected. Last episode, we talked about voting as a crucial step toward achieving change and the change we need to see. So now that we've gotten a somewhat clearer picture of what kind of sort of like a clearer picture of what our politics will look like in 2021. Let's dive a little bit deeper and talk about what we need now. Oh, and by the way, my name is Lauren. And my name is Rico. And welcome to the What We Need Now podcast by Greenpeace USA. This month, we're going to talk about the next step after voting, because all of that is sort of over now. I'm sure when you're listening to it, Uh, we're talking about nonviolent direct action and how it is and has been a critical part of pushing our movements forward. What We Need Now, a podcast where we invite the people doing the work to do the talking. Rico, so how you feeling? Uh, do you want a real answer? Yeah, be real, be real. Yeah, um, it's the Friday after the election, and we don't know what's going to happen. I'm glad there's no civil war. I feel that. I'm happy some places are calling it for Biden, um, and it looks like even Georgia crib, might go for crib. Biden. <laughs> Which is crazy, like, well, that's where we're from. And, you know, I love it if that was like a deciding factor in the whole thing. But um, generally, I'm super nervous. I'm watching CNN, which I don't even remember the last time I was watching cable news. I don't I don't like it there. I don't I don't want to do that anymore. I just want this whole thing to be over, basically. Yeah. How are you? Really? My heart's been pounding since Tuesday. I'll be real. Mm -hmm. Um. The fact that we could go blue really makes me excited to be here, to be in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, you know, to be, let me go real, let me be real too. Um, I know that change isn't a given, no matter who's president. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that regardless of who wins, you know, I'm still a black person in America, right? Um, in the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and this 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 year, excuse me, this week <laughs> has been a year. <laughs> it feels um, so. So yeah, I'm just trying to grapple with a, a lot of emotions of like, you know, slight anxiety, but also hopefulness in our society. And yeah, we'll see where it goes. This is Friday, you know. Hopefully, when folks are listening to this, we'll have like a declared president. Oh right. my goodness! Yes. Um, but yeah. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. I'm. I'm also like in a place of I never pull out 
the bag of my full emotions until the thing actually happens. Mm-hmm. Same. So, yep. Kind of on uh, reserve right now. So. Mm-hmm. I feel that. And I appreciate you checking in with me. And I encourage everybody who's listening to take a moment and check in with somebody you love, a family member, a neighbor, especially if you got somebody in Georgia or one of these swing states, (laughs) Um, because we're going to need all of us in this Mm -hmm. fight. And with that, let's let's get into the episode. Let's talk about direct action. We've all seen the images of police dragging black bodies away from segregated lunch counters. We've seen the simple act of joining hands to walk across a bridge met with fire hoses, batons, and dogs. We've seen flowers brandished in front of military-grade tanks. We've seen the enormous amounts of courage people have summoned to peacefully resist oppressive forces. And those images of nonviolent resistance stick with us. They make it into the history books. But do they actually work? Mm, I mean, as always, the answer is quite complicated. But let's look at what nonviolence is and how it can help lead to wins. Um, But I'd like to start by being super clear about what we mean by nonviolence. So as a movement definition, nonviolence is a strategy and a tool that peacefully confronts oppressive power. I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear nonviolence referred to as a strategy rather than a philosophy. Could we unpack that a little bit more? For sure, for sure. So let me break it down and we'll use home base as an example. For us at Greenpeace, nonviolence as a strategy looks like our campaign work to fight for people on the planet. And we know that the people we are up against in the fight for environmental justice don't really have much of a conscience. (laughs) The shade. (laughs) Um, And obviously, that's why through nonviolent direct action in our campaigns, we aim to face the sheer violence of the fossil fuel industry and other bad actors with the nonviolent strategy of peace and justice. In general, direct action is an umbrella term for any collective action that stops injustice directly, as opposed to through through politics or the courts, all the systems we don't really need or are super antiquated. Um, right. And, and direct action, it shifts the balance of power from one system to the hands of many people. But what does that actually look like? For Greenpeace, this looks like a lot of different things. It's kind of what people know us for, whether it's blocking whaling ships or aerial blockades in Houston and in Portland um, and 40 years of other creative forms of resistance all over the globe. But obviously, Greenpeace is not alone in this fight. All across the so-called U.S. and around the world, individuals and organizations use nonviolent direct action to fight for what they believe in. Folks like Climate Justice Alliance are using nonviolent mass mobilizations to raise awareness about our fragile planet. Movement for Black Lives training communities across the nation to rally and fight for Black lives. Land defenders doing nonviolent blockades to stop pipelines from destroying the land and our communities. It's all connected. I totally agree. But I also think it would be remiss of us if we didn't mention the variances and how nonviolent direct action is applied. These variances come about because everyone's understanding of what violence is differs. For some people, that starts at the harming of people. For others, violence could include the destruction of property. Right. Also, the perception of whether or not a group is violent can be very different depending on who's (laughs) protesting. Um, And as an aside, like anything that black and brown people do, it might be critiqued. Too many of us show up to vote. They yell in voter fraud. Too many of us in a park. Barbecue Becky's calling on you. And so obviously that's going to apply to direct action. So it's not just the tactics that determine whether or not it's perceived as violent, but also the makeup of the group itself. Right. And, you know, we have recent examples like from Ferguson to Kenosha 
where we've seen how the media focuses on random items like the trash can on fire or the gas <laughs> station with a broken window. <laughs> right. When no one's in the gas station. Yes. Um, and, rather than the police that are brutalizing these peaceful protesters. Yeah. And because of the wide array of ways that people view violence, a lot of times in in-person trainings, we do the spectrogram, you know, the it's coordinate grid where uh, one axis is violent to nonviolent and the other axis goes from effective to non-effective. And, you know, the facilitator reads different scenarios or different tactics and people move through the space based on how violent or nonviolent they think that tactic is and how effective or non-effective they think it is. Um, and a lot of times you're surprised where other people land when you do that exercise. Full transparency, never been to a nonviolent direct action training, and geometry was not my strong point in <laughs> okay, high school. Word, word. So can you break down a little bit of, you know, the goal behind this activity and what I as a participant would be trying to achieve if I were involved in this? Or hook me up. For sure. And, you know... Geometry is also not my my forte. As we my... use terms like perpendicular. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. I need to I need to stay in my lane. Um, so spectrogram, the goal is to move past your assumptions. We all we all use the word violence. We have different ideas of what it means. And so if I'm gonna take action with a group of people, I wanna make sure that we can at least have some alignment or like a shared understanding of what as a group we're defining. Uh, these terms to mean and what strategies we're willing to use because we think they're effective and also like what tactics and things like that align with our values. You, you might have an example that's like blocking a bridge and some people will immediately move to effective and nonviolent and then other people will be on the exact opposite side of the thing. They'll say it's not effective and it's and it's violent. And it might be surprising to see that people have the exact opposite idea of what a tactic is. But once you work through that, you can land on something that everybody wants to do. Well, I mean, with that, you know, since we're talking about spectrograms, since there's a spectrum, there can't be one standardized way of enacting nonviolent direct action. Right. So that means that it's necessary to name the factors that inform and frame someone's understanding of violence versus nonviolence. A lot of these perspectives are based on lived experience, and we want to make clear that people should choose what's right for them. And <laughs> that we're not here to police each other, mm -hmm. and we have enough of that in the world. Yes, and that's why it's super important to, before an action, determine what your strategy is, what parameters and boundaries you're going to use, which is not always the easiest thing in the mm -hmm. world to do. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to this month's guest. Yes, Brianna Gibson, Director of Action Strategy and Training for the Blackout Collective. Blackout Collective is an organization that believes that Black people should engage in direct action to affect change. Yes, Brianna's super dope, and they work with organizations across the movement to help them effectively employ direct action in their campaigns. And as Rico and I mentioned before, nonviolent direct action is a strategy that has a multitude, a swath. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other terms. Come on, come on. <laughs> okay, help me out, uh, it's a, a gaggle. Um, <laughs> a, uh, a collage. A, corn a cornucopia. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> Thank you. Just a variety, <laughs> a myriad ways that it can be applied, y'all. Yes. The Blackout Collective applies direct action in four distinct ways from rapid response, reform, rebellion, to resilience. resilience. And Rico spoke with Brianna about the successes that they've had using these strategies, as well as how nonviolent direct action has shaped their outlook and the views of what it means to be an activist. Yes, it was a great conversation. You're about to hear all of their brilliance. But first... 
a word from our sponsors. In moments of crisis, you may turn to the inspiring words of Dr. Martin Luther King. His quotes go a long way in the comment section of a Reddit thread, but sometimes they're a little too spicy and derail your contradicting points. While regular MLK may force you down the rabbit hole of injustice in society, Diet MLK is great for when you just want to win that comment battle on your niece's Facebook. Here's some samples of what we have to offer. Did your daughter's boyfriend just say Black Lives Matter? Try this quote. I look to a day when police officers will be judged not by the content of their character, but by the color of their uniform. Are people saying looting is a victimless crime? We'll use this MLK comeback. Man must evolve for all human conflict, the method which maintains property value. Here are a few of our favorites. A dream deferred is still a dream. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, except here. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only a newly painted Black Lives Matter plaza can do that. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the hashtags that they shared. I have a dream that one day we will walk hand in hand with police that work so hard to end black and brown lives. There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but he must take it because conscience tells him it is right. Luckily, that time has not come. With Diet MLK, you'll be seen as the most progressive person in your circle. Let freedom ring, quietly, with Diet MLK. Welcome back to the show. Our guest today is the amazing activist, organizer, trainer, educator, Brianna Gibson. Uh, Brianna, how are you feeling today on the eve of the election? You know, we're watching and waiting. So like everyone, do you know what's going to happen? No. Does it feel more serious than ever before? Yeah, a little bit. Before we get into it, can you share your name, pronouns, and a little about the land that you're on? Um, Sure. Yeah. So, hey, y'all. My name is Brianna. Um, I use they or she pronouns. And I am recently back where I'm from, D.C. area, so I'm in Southeast Washington, D.C. right now, and um, Ward 8, Southeast D.C.'s historically super Black area of the city, even though yes, D.C. was, and some, at some point we'll begin being again chocolate city. Um, <laughs> we're, we're working on it. We're working on it. I have a plan, but I can't, I can't tell everyone yet. Okay. Um, but Southeast D.C. actually, like, particularly, you know, Frederick Douglass lived here, a bunch of um, OG folks who uh, did a lot to get us where we are today and set us up for um, some shit in the future. So that's always a constant reminder um, being out here, especially in an area where people still experience high rates of oppression, repression, and suppression. And we're like, people just generally don't care about black folks. I'm living on a block right now where the um, water department for the city um, is responsible for a broken pipe that goes through a whole block. And so there, I have neighbors in, in this home as well, which is part of the reason why we're moving, you know, who have sewage consistently flooding in their basement. And it's not a, yeah. it's not a priority to folks because this is where Black folks live. Yeah, and that's unfortunately definitely not uncommon any place Black folks live. Uh, <laughs> um, and we're talking about how we take power, how we transform our communities through direct action. You mentioned Frederick Douglass. Could you say some of the other people who have informed your understanding of direct action? Yeah, for sure. Um, so when I think about direct action, yeah, sure. It's like a Frederick Douglass, there's Harriet Tubman, who's OG, OG on the direct action. 
there are a bunch of ancestors whose names we don't know. Then there are the folks that we do know, right? So there's A. Philip Randolph, there's Wyatt Rustin, there's Diane Ash, all the way through. We got the homies of SNCC. Oh, wait, hold on a second. Um, I got to shout out SNCC. That's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They were a really dope youth-led organization encouraged by Ella Baker to organize themselves. Uh, they're a huge part of the civil rights era. And if you're hearing names that Brianna's shouting out that you don't know, definitely check out our website. We'll have links to all of these amazing leaders. Okay, back to the convo. We have the Black Power era. We got the Black Panthers with like very particular forms of direct action, right? And then even like through the 90s, right? There were other forms of direct action and people were coordinating things on a mass scale. So it's a lot to pull from, but some of the things that, feel most important to me to remember are just the like kind of everyday forms of resistance and direct action that our ancestors took on this land in order to be disruptive to the systems that brought them here and held them here um, against their will. So, you know, that's like work stoppages of a certain kind, you know, as enslaved people, you're breaking something, you're, you're doing other things to slow down the process, right? Um, that's escaping slavery, helping homes get out of slavery. Um, that's also like acts of resistance, like jumping off a ship rather than being taken um, to a foreign land where you don't know what's going to happen to you, right? And you already have been treated terribly. Um, so I like to remind myself of all of those things, draw inspiration from, you know, our cousins over in Haiti who really did the damn thing. <laughs> all the way up into a revolution um and also our folks here who led rebellions and all forms of resistance and ran away and created communities um and like uh prefigured the lives that they wanted their descendants to have um and that that is a form of direct action in and of itself so yeah thank you for the context so now moving into the present what is blackout collective right so the blackout collective is a Black Direct Action Training and Service Organization. We train folks in direct action. We support folks in thinking through their direct action strategy, incorporating direct action in their campaigns, in planning just very specific direct actions or sequences for like escalation theories. Um, and then sometimes we offer people action support, tech support for the before, during, and after with those things as well. We talk about direct action and train people in it from a, a Black perspective. Um, and it's important for us to always remember that Black folks have always engaged in direct action and it's not something that's foreign to us. And what is the advantage to talking about direct action through a Black lens and specifically from a Black perspective? Yeah, so one, um, definitely believe, I'm a person who believes that once Black people are liberated, all people will be liberated. And so paying attention to the tactics that we use for our liberation um, is at the heart of that, right? So often we're using direct actions to get a little bit more free, a little bit more free and get us much closer, that much closer to liberation. And so if we're talking about black liberation must happen in order for anyone else to actually truly be liberated, then understanding black direct action as a tactic and a tactic that moves things, forces the hand of decision makers, forces some other things, creates more imaginative spaces mm. um, is, something that's super important to, to understand and learn from. And how did y'all get started? So 2014, you know, things were popping off. 
Um, and there, among the many calls that came out of Ferguson after Mike Brown was murdered, um, there was one for October, Ferguson October. And so there was a group of about four Black folks who came down. They had put out a call for direct action practitioners. When they got there, they realized there weren't a lot of Black direct action practitioners. Um, and so they, you know, bonded with each other very quickly because there's a very small group of them and decided, talked through some things and decided like, hey, I think actually we should form a collective because there's a need in our community to have more folks who are skilled up in direct action who are Black um, and can in turn train others. And that that's a very particular experience and lens to come from, especially um, in comparison to, for instance, with you know, the, most of the people who were there as direct action trainers were white people, right? Um, and that is in the sense of even like physically in your body, confronting state power, confronting the police, a very different experience. Um, so that's how Blackout Collective was born. Um, five, not four, but uh, five Black folks who went to Ferguson, Missouri. Some of them knew each other, some did it, um, met up. We all had skills in direct action and we're like, yo, let's train. The initial goal was to train 10,000 black folks in direct action. And we're past that now. So I think, I don't, I don't know that we ever set another goal, but, um, yeah. So started off with that, that group of five people. And then the next year in 2015, they added on to the crew. I was part of the 2015 crew. Uh, <laughs> Which was really just, you know, a lot of folks who have been throwing down with um, the Blackout Collective over that very intense year. Um, and we've been trying to grow, develop, get sharper, um, sharpen our folks and ever since. Word. And I mean, you, you're not just a strategist or, you know, a theorist or, or even just a trainer, but you are also someone who has taken direct action. Do you feel like that has transformed you or changed your perspective? Absolutely. Growing up, you know, my sister, when I went to visit her, my sister's nine years older than I am. So when I would go visit her and she's driving around the city, whatever, I would have a book always. <laughs> and so at some point she took to like basically confiscating my book while I was with her because she's like, you're not going to read while you're with me. Like you're supposed to be having sister time. Fine. But I was super into historical fiction, and obviously history is just, for the most part, you know, a lot of series of dumpster fires that tell you how you got to where you are now, which is one way I like it, one reason why I like it. Are there other things? Yes, I know everyone. It's not just dumpster fires. Won't, won't, won't. In reading those things and then trying to talk to um, adults in my life or others, it felt kind of like people were a little matter of fact, right? So it's like, damn, like this, all this really wild stuff happened. Um, and like, what can we do around the impact of those things today? What could people have done then? What did people do? And I felt like a lot of the answers I got were around like, well, yeah, that just is how it was. <laughs> or like, that just is how it is. And or they're like very particular ways to change those things that are going to take a long time and whatever, whatever, um, or that don't actually get to the root of the issue. And as an adult, when I began practicing direct action on a regular basis, it struck a chord with me because 
it allowed me to say no with like my body, with my comrades, with my community in a way that I never felt empowered to say no directly to power um, before in my life, right? Didn't even know it was possible. Like, oh yeah, you can go to a city council meeting and just disrupt it because they're talking about nonsense. Like, you did not even have that as an understanding as a kid, but stepping outside of that gave me a fuller sense of my own power and the power of my community. And also like really put you on a road like, oh yeah, we can shift some stuff because we have it and we, we don't have to be confined to the rules, the regulations, the boxes, the forms of taking action that people in power tell us that we have as options because of course they tell us that those are the options because they want to keep their power. But yeah, so it's been transformative for me in that way and really healing and I think has opened my own mind to all of the many creative possibilities we have when we conceptualize the new world that we want to live in and that we want to build for the future. So in the time that is COVID, you know, global pandemic meets election season, extended, defend against fascism, slash <laughs> wildfires, multiple uprisings in response to police killings. Um, how have y'all adjusted to this time? Yeah, I think this time has required us to just really pull on a lot of the learnings that we have pulled from the past, was that almost six years? Wow, that's crazy. Because all of those things, right, have been times where people use direct action in order to get certain needs met, in order to confront power in ways that they needed to be confronted that would actively save people's lives, right? So even with COVID-19, right, from making sure that folks were able to stay in their homes, making sure that people were actually receiving the sort of protection equipment that they needed, as well as the sort of healthcare that they needed, to a host of other things, right, addressing ways in which communities of color, particularly Black and Brown communities, were more heavily policed. Folks were using direct action to turn up against those things. And then in the wake of the uprisings, of course, the whole country was, you know, all, all 50 states and D.C. and, you know, our homies who are out there in the colonies, that's the territory, they don't say territory, colonies, we're turning up, right? And using direct action in order to confront the power of the state and the power of law enforcement, whatever, you know, the police state, and their hand in destroying our communities um, and taking people's lives. Uh, withdrawing people, taking out people out of our communities, both by killing them physically and then like the other forms of killing that they attempt to do when they take people out of our communities and put them in prisons and jails and other kinds of cells, including detention centers and everything else. Um, so that was another time. And then, you know, people are also turning up around the election and preparing to, preparing to turn up if and when necessary, especially around like defending mm -hmm. their rights and defending their bodies, their homes, their communities, if needed. Because we know that a lot of really wild stuff has already been going on, right? So in North Carolina, we already had the police pepper spraying people right. who were just doing like a march to the polls. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. It's been a that very wild, wild year. But um, for me, it's just been like, word, how do we take all these lessons? And it's like turbo time, right? To, to implement all the things and we're constantly learning. I am doing things virtually has been interesting because I feel like we have 50 versions of like the same direct action 101 training. 
<laughs> but it's because, mm-hmm. right, you want and you're like, oh, I should have did this. So you tweak it. And that's another copy. And then you tweak it again. And it's another copy. And now I have all these copies of this thing. And at some point, we're going to have to reconcile them, maybe put it into one. But it's also important, like I said, to, to keep growing, keep sharpening, um, and to not stay stagnant because we're in an ever-changing landscape and ever-changing world. So you got to adjust, shift, and make sure that you are actually you know, connecting with folks and that what you're saying resonates with them in a way that is real effective and actually useful. So, hmm. so just that, you know, no big deal. <laughs> 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 the thing. Well, so um, I know that Blackout Collective, you talk about kind of four, what is it? Is like four pieces or four sides of direct action? Four, frame. um, four, four frame. strategies? Four frames? Okay, my bad, my bad. I'm going to get the noun eventually. Um, <laughs> you know, just practicing. So what are the four frames? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of our understanding of direct action and how people use it is when we really start talking about the frames, right? So it's not just that it's only used during uprisings or it's only used in within an organization running a particular campaign, right? But that we can see direct action and a variety of actions in the same way that I was talking about, you know, how um, as Black people, our ancestors took part in a bunch of different forms of direct action that maybe when you are hearing about it from like family members or learning about it in the school, you're not necessarily thinking like, yeah, and they were, they were doing direct action or they were turning up, right? It just was like, oh, they, oh, they broke that farming tool word. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it's useful for us to think about the how and then to break down like, okay, what do each of these things do? So we have rapid response, which folks are probably familiar with, at least in the past six years, there's been a lot of rapid response going on, um, especially in response to extrajudicial killings of Black folks in the U.S. So this past summer, after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, people turned up and they kept turning up for Breonna Taylor, for Tony McDade, for Amar Arbery. So those were all rapid response actions, right? So immediately responding to an injustice or intervening to stop one. So an example of like the intervention uh, that we often talk about is in 2015 um, in Cleveland as the first movement for Black Lives Convergence. At the very end, um, <laughs> It so happened that they, the Cleveland police were trying to arrest um, a young black boy, um, definitely a minor, maybe 13 or 14, I believe. And it was right after we had closed, a bunch of organizers. And so folks stepped into the, or moved into the muscle memory that they already had around rapid response and direct action and successfully de-arrested this young black boy and like was, were able to contact his mother and get her down there to take him. And by at least that I had gotten there and others as well, like he was in the police car. And so we had to block the police car from leaving, right? Someone, we had people working from different angles to make sure that someone got into contact with his family. Someone was over there, you know, getting information from the police around whatever they thought they were doing and trying to like buy us a little time, right? So, <laughs> Um, that was an example of another rapid response action that like, actually stopped the thing from happening. Like, oh, y'all not going to take this young black boy to jail today. His mom is just going to come get him. We talk about rebellion, which sometimes, like, direct actions can be more than one of these. 
But I would also say a lot of the uprisings this past summer, especially when we look at the things that got a lot of news coverage in Minneapolis, burning down the third precinct, shout out, um, we're also rebellion, right? So it's just like, oh, this system's not valid anyway. And so we're just going to turn up on it because it, it's not valid. Just your authority as a police officer is not valid in our community. It's actually a violent institution that's rooted in being a slave catcher, slave patrol. Um, and so this entire precinct um, that is a headquarters for you all in this community is not a valid structure. It's not something we want here. So we're going to light it on fire, right? So that's a rebellion thing. And then there's resilience, which I explain to folks as being different from rebellion because resilience is you are asserting your right to a thing. So you're not asking for it, you're just taking it. Um, so shout out to Black moms in Oakland who, you know, were from West Oakland, saw that there was a house that hadn't been occupied in years. It was being held by a bank that didn't need to live in a house <laughs> and wasn't, right? And decided, okay, we don't have housing. We deserve housing. We have a right to housing inherently as human beings. And so we're going to live in this home, right? So that's a resilience action. You have a house as a human right. There's an empty house. We're going to go live in the house. And then things that people, especially like folks who identify as organizers, tend to be more familiar with are direct actions that are based on campaigns. And we call those reform. Um, but it's just, yeah you plan out a campaign again you're you know the stereotypical kind of like organizing 101 like oh and your target's the mayor and what are you going to do to <laughs> convince them to do the thing that you want um you're like we're going to do a sit-in uh we call those reform-based actions but it's just really thinking about how we use direct action and like what purposes do each of those things serve because they do have like very distinct purposes um, and understanding like then what is the impact that those things do. We can also understand how to most strategically use direct action as a When we come back, we're going to return to that spectrum of violence to nonviolence and hear Brianna and Blackout Collective's takes on those things. But first, this. This episode of What We Need Now brought to you in part by Recipes for Disaster, a new show from the Funky Food Network. All right, y'all. This week's recipe for disaster is dumpster flambe. This seasonal recipe goes great with losing an election. It's very easy to make, and you can find these ingredients pretty much anywhere you look. So let's get cooking. First, you'll want to start by preheating your environment by one degree Celsius each year. While that heats up, you want to elect a politician that ignores all climate scientists, and then go ahead and open up your cabinet, and you're going to want to fire everyone in there. Very finely, chop up your voter protections, dice the pandemic response team, and then mince the EPA, NASA, the United States Postal Service, Park Service, and whatever else you'd like to add for taste. Throw in a global pandemic, but do not season it just yet. It's best to just ignore it. Next, you're going to take a steel potato masher to voter confidence. Like, really, really smash that. And don't forget to pour in some disinformation. Mix in some white supremacists and put the rest on standby. You'll definitely need them later. Gather as many conflicts of interest as you can find and fold those into the mix. Repeat until you are impeached and then add even more. Important. While you're stirring up the swamp, you may notice there's some smoke and maybe even a wildfire coming up from the pan. Do not turn down the heat at that point. Make sure you separate children from their families 
a lot of folks use cage-free children, but not us. And if you can't find any news or facts that you like, you can just whip up your own a la Manu. And don't shy away from saying that you won't leave office. We love a little spice because that's our business. And finally, you'll bring it all to a boil on election day. And you'll have a nice little recipe for losing an election. Remember, though, this recipe only serves the wealthy 1%, so you may need to increase the yield. Tune in next week for our bourgeoisie Caesar salad. So, Brianna, the other thing we're talking about in this episode is that spectrum of violence to nonviolence, how different individuals, different communities and different organizations view violence differently. Um, And as Greenpeace, we have a specific stance of nonviolence and what that means to us. But since you all work with so many different groups and communities, I want to hear a little bit about how you navigate that, what it means to you and how you make those kinds of decisions uh, for campaigns. Yeah. um, So we don't make those decisions for other folks, right? Um, like you said, nonviolence can be a strategy, a tactic. Uh, in the civil rights movement, that was a tactic, right? And for some people, it's a philosophy. For some people, they're like, yeah, this is one tool and a very large toolkit. And sometimes nonviolence is going to be the thing that's, to use that's most strategic in getting you to your goals. But we don't prescribe that for any group that we work for or work with. Um, and we don't, yeah, like we don't determine that. We kind of are just like, what do you want to do? Um, and move from there because that's not that's not our decision, especially in terms of being a capacity building organization. You know, like, yes, we're Black people. We're impacted by a lot of the things that the folks that we are working with are impacted by. And, you know, within our communities, we're able to make decisions around that. And then when we're there to offer capacity and support in whatever ways that folks want it to other organizations in different places, like that's that community's decision because they're the people who are going to be most impacted by any of the results or consequences of that. So we don't make that decision for folks. Um, and yeah, when you're in a blackout training, you'll hear us just talk about direct action and where you take things from there. Like, that's y'all. I want to talk about two narratives that come up a lot and definitely were prevalent this summer during the uprisings, which is narrative A, anything protesters do in the streets, especially if it's black people, uh, indigenous people, is like people will call that violent. They will critique it. um, They got something to say. And then on the far other extreme, anything that does pop off at at a protest or during an uprising, if it falls outside of someone's understanding of nonviolence, then they assume it's provocateurs, it's agents. Um, it's somebody, you know, it's a cop dressed up in, in plain clothes and it doesn't leave room for the nuance of maybe that's how that community showed up that day, or maybe that's what this community felt they needed to do in order to, to, um, have their needs met. Yeah, I think all of those, yes to all of those things. One of the things that I, or a couple of things I share with folks a lot um, around the conversation around violence and nonviolence, there are a couple of different clips. One, Angela Davis speaking about violence uh, while she was incarcerated, and another one of um, Stokely speaking a little bit about violence. And I feel like they come to kind of a similar place, right? There's not like necessarily a landing place. It's like, oh, so what are we talking about, right? You know, Angela Davis talked about growing up in Birmingham and, you know, her mother was a school teacher for one of the little black girls who died in the church bombing. And like 
also talking about, oh, among your first experiences with guns, being Black folks in the South protecting their homes, protecting each other, protecting their communities from white vigilantes, from the KKK, other um, white supremacist groups who were actively attacking Black people on a regular basis. And so it's like, yeah, in that context, it's like, there's nuance, it complicates everything. What is, what is violence? Even people talking about people breaking into stores and like stealing things. But again, you know, <laughs> let's contextualize. If people are breaking into stores, they're stealing food. Like, yeah, there's a lot of violence inherent in how the state purposely withholds resources from some of the folks who live here. There's no coincidence that those folks happen to most often be folks who are black and brown and or that poor people in general don't have access to the things that they need in order to live a full life and one that will allow them to move beyond just a state of survival, right? And so that actually is a form of violence. So then, again, it's like, yeah, what are we talking about, right? <laughs> or that, you know, people think property destruction is violent and then they turn around and pass bills in their state legislatures that say that you can absolutely hit protesters with your car if they are just in the way, mm -hmm. right? So, again, what what are we talking about? <laughs> right. Or like, what was the officer who you know fired into Breonna Taylor's home? What was he actually charged with? With hitting a wall? Yeah, a wall. Right. Yeah, and then there's also the layer, especially as like a black direct action organization, of black bodies are inherently considered violent. Standing is violent. Sleeping is violent. Um, any like black bodies are read as inherently violent, inherently full of like so much potential for violence. And, you know, I think separate from all of that, if we were really to go down the rabbit hole of conversation, there's always the conversation around, um, values that get weighted onto the words violent and nonviolent. And that's just a whole nother thing. But, you know, there's a lot there and there, there's a lot to unpack. Um, like I said, in our trainings, we usually actually try to get folks to start teasing some of that out. And it's really interesting what people come up with. We'll ask people, you know, if certain actions are violent or nonviolent, and then sometimes we'll layer effective or not effective on top of it. And it's it's interesting. I was trying to think how we could do a spectrogram and a podcast. <laughs> like if I if you have any ideas, I would take it because I would love to for people who are you know kind of new to the idea of direct action or especially nonviolent direct action to like have a have the way to translate that experience to an audio podcast. So if you have an idea, let me know. I mean, yeah, I mean, we usually ask questions, folks that guess to like in their mind sort where they are. Like if I one of the questions that we usually start with, like, oh, wearing a Foxophobia shirt to school. Is that violent and or nonviolent? If you're just doing one way, is it effective or not effective? Um, and kind of like move from there, maybe to setting a police precinct on fire. Um, destroying some cop cars, uh, kids throwing rocks at soldiers, right? And just see where people land. And it's interesting, of course, also the more complicated the situations get. Or like, for instance, by the time you hit kids throwing rocks at soldiers, it's where people usually start to um, really start to struggle with the, the nuance of like, well, throwing rocks at a person, but this person is a soldier, maybe not be fine for, like, you know. Right. <laughs> um, it, it gets really interesting. And just shout out for blackout trainings once again. Like I had so much fun at the one that y'all did here, I guess a year ago. And that was my first time watching 90 Day Fiance actually. I know well. that. <laughs> when I just like, so this is what we're doing, okay? We are watching 90 Day Fiance. 
So go ahead and grab your lunch. Um, it's, a, it's a great show. And there are just so many versions of it that truly, shout out to that. If you haven't watched 90 Days, y'all are out there. Watch it. If you haven't watched Lovecraft and you're Ooh, out there, yes. watch it. Lovecraft. Lovecraft is dope. Lovecraft is dope. I've only seen a few episodes, but um, I, I yeah. need to do a marathon yeah. of that. So I have no segue at all, yeah, uh, but I do. I want to ask you a question for people who are trying to get involved in direct action. Maybe they voted and they want to know, what can I do with this energy now? How can I get involved with direct action? Mm-hmm. What are some mm-hmm. of the on-ramps? Yeah. Um, if there's a march or a rally, you can always go to that. Um, but you can also just get linked up with any of the groups around you, folks around you who are doing different stuff. Um, Sometimes people find out about those things. People still post flyers. There are a bunch of flyers. So that's still a thing. You know, people find different things on Facebook. But also, you know, you can always get your own crew of people Hmm. and decide that y'all are, like, not with this thing or you are with this thing and you want to do something about it and throw it down together. I mean, I feel like a lot of actions that... I've been a part of uh, were kind of like a group of people and we were like yeah the mayor of Oakland is spending the whole first couple of days of her uh, tenure just just talking to the Oakland police Mm. and most of them don't even live in Oakland we're like let's just give her a people's (laughs) inauguration a people's wake-up call yeah and you know we did it (laughs) that was an action so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a little bit of both ends, right? Keep your eye out, see who is maybe doing some stuff in that area. Do you see the same folks talking about, like, this thing? You see folks who are constantly flying? Or do you know people who uh, even work at, like, service organizations sometimes who are constantly trying to get you to come out to this thing or that? See what folks are about. And then also, like, don't be afraid to, obviously, within reason grab your crew and do a thing which reminds me of the shout out to the homies in chicago uh mm-hmm. who have been running a decentralized uh campaign to defund the chicago police department um which has been really interesting to witness just in terms of them doing mass trainings uh and then empowering folks after they go to a training to plan their own actions mm-hmm. um yeah it's been a very a very cool thing to watch because most campaigns like that are not that decentralized where some folks come to maybe three trainings and then you're able to you go to some mass organizing meetings right and then you're planning actions with your crew in service of like oh. a broader campaign so that's been really dope to watch um so you can also do something like that you know yeah shout out <laughs> chicago yeah over a thousand people in the first weekend it was really it was really dope wow and when you were talking about the resilience framework, the first thing I thought of, of course, was uh, the home and square occupation on the west side of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, you want to talk about that? For sure. Uh, so home and square was a black site used by the Chicago Police Department for decades where they would take suspects to interrogate them and torture them. In fact, one of the police officers from home and square went to Guantanamo and then came back, uh, basically, I guess, to, to trade, you know, tricks of the trade. Um, but activists took that space and occupied, and it was super inspiring. You could probably say more about what they actually did. Yeah. So home, the Home and Square occupation, they called it Freedom Square. They didn't even plan for it to be an occupation, right? So, like, hmm. the, it was part of the Freedom Now actions. 
summer 2016, and uh, BYP 100, Chicago chapter, had planned to do a shutdown of Holman Square, blocked off the entrance, and a couple of folks, um, Damon and Jennifer and Christiana um, from the Let Us Breathe Collective, at the same time, wanted to provide a space to imagine what life could be if like, folks in that community actually had all of the resources and love and care that they deserve and need. And so took over that space. I think the first night though, some of the neighborhood kids came through and were like, yo, can we can we sleep out here? And so they were like, yes. <laughs> and then it became a thing, right? Um, and more folks came by and it was a really necessary space. So yeah, shout out to that. Um, actually did the, they had the four year anniversary party of it. Um, this past summer, which was, uh, they also, you know, it was also part of the Dag Cities and one of the Deep Punk campaign. So pretty, pretty dope. Shout out to the homies out there. Right. And you know, I love any opportunity to shout out Chicago. So thank you for the plug. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity. All right. Sure. Um, last question I have for you is what do we need now to take action in these times and to win liberation for our people? I know you said this is the the Jesus and Mero, um, what do you want your rainbow to say question. Yeah, I'm, get in where you fit in, you feel me? Get in where you fit in. There's a spot for everybody in like the movement and in liberation work in general. We need folks, we need folks to hold particular space. So get in where you fit in, Jesus. Our guest today was Brianna Gibson of Blackout Collective. You can find them on Facebook at Blackout Collective, on Twitter at BLK Direct Action, and on Instagram at Black Direct Action. Now we want all of y'all to take action. The first thing I'm going to ask you to do, which is the easiest way to do all the other things, text what we need now to 877-877. That way you can find links to all the things we reference on the show. You can follow Blackout Collective and you can get updates on what's going on with us. Also, make sure that wherever you listen to this, that you like it, subscribe, and if you can, comment. I prefer comments that don't make any sense out of context so that people have to listen. It's a great great tool. Please do that. And I'm really excited to let you know that next month, we're going to be bringing the people behind the scenes in front of the mic. This month, you got to hear from Lauren Wiggins, who's been producing the podcast behind the scenes. And next month, you're going to hear from Jonathan Butler, Jasmine Comwell, Isharad, and the whole podcast team. And we're all going to be sharing the space a little bit. So I'm excited about that. And that's it for now. I hope that you get some rest this election season. And we will see you next time. What we need now.